Hi, I'm Bill Watkins, and welcome to the Good Shared Podcast. The Good Shared Podcast is designed to share all kinds of good stories. Some stories will be spiritual, some more practical, and some will be shared just for entertaining. The Good Shared Podcast is a production of the Creve Hall Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Good Shared. We're so happy today we have Lonnie Jones here. I want to tell you something about Lonnie. Uh, Lonnie's been married to Jackie since 1984. He has a Bible degree from Harding University, a master's degree in counseling from Alabama A&M. He's a licensed professional counselor. He's a nationally certified counselor. He's been in ministry since 1980, private practice since 1998. He's a police chaplain with the Huntsville SWAT team since 1992. Uh, he does adventure education, leadership development. Uh, he does all sorts of things, climbing walls. He's a he is a karate expert, jujitsu jiu expert. I am so sorry. Sorry, I don't know the difference, but I'll just tell you. I'll show you. I'm the whole <laughs> I read them. I know. But, but anyway, he he does all kinds of things with youth and counseling. And, and I've never known anybody sort of like a new renaissance man. There's not anything that I know that Lonnie can't do well. And so I'm really happy you're here, Lonnie. Well, thank you guys for inviting me to be a guest today. I enjoy podcasting. Thank you guys for letting me sit at the table. Well, it's, it's a great thing. Uh, I, I do want to ask you something separate from anything else we want to talk about. How did you and Jackie meet? So I was at Harding, and they had a program called SWAT stood for students working and teaching and we were going to just some of us guys that were bible majors go about these little small churches and help and uh, i was assigned to go to possum grape arkansas possum grape possum grapes a real place and uh, right right outside of toad suck but uh, <laughs> a, uh, a guy came to me and said hey i've got distant kin at possum grape do you mind swapping assignments i'm supposed to go to velvet ridge and i went to this little church in velvet ridge arkansas and her family attended there. She was 14, and I was a, uh, a Harding student and taught the Bible class. First Sunday we were there, her mom fed all the college kids at their house homemade spaghetti, and we sat around the ping pong table, and we went outside to play basketball, and this little bitty girl from Arkansas was shooting my eyes out with a 25-foot jumper, and I decided we'd get a little contact under the goal and pushed her out of the way, and when I went for a rebound, she knocked me down, and I was in love, <laughs> and so I had to wait till she ripened up a little bit from <laughs> being 14, but uh, we got permission from her folks for us to date it when she turned 16, and I guess I was 19, and uh, we've been together since then. That's fantastic. I love that. I, I've never heard of those towns, so I'm just okay, telling right. you, that, that's a wonderful thing. I, I don't know that those will ever become metropolises, but that's a... What, what a way to meet your future spouse, and what a way to change your life. I think Absolutely. it's great. So you you do a lot of work with young people. You speak at, at assemblies of thousands of kids all over this country, and, and I appreciate that very much. If you were talking to somebody today who's really struggling to find their faith, what would your best advice be? First of all, I want to know where the struggle comes from. Children, adolescents non-adults are egocentric. They don't walk by a plate glass window and not look at themselves. They don't pick up a cell phone to take a picture of themselves. The whole world revolves around them. And because of that, because they're egocentric, everything is about them. Everything is often always their fault. 
and they struggle with their faith, sometimes simply because of trauma. I'm a bad person. God doesn't love me. God is punishing me. So the first thing is, where's the struggle coming from? And if it comes from a negative experience, and anytime you experience trauma, and I don't get to dictate what is traumatic for you, big T trauma, little T trauma, when we have trauma, we have implicit beliefs about that. When bad things happen to us, it says something about us. It says something about the other people. Adults are dangerous. Adults can't be trusted. Coaches are bad. Boy Scout leaders, whatever. It says something about us, something about other people. It redefines my past. It says something about my past. It says something about my future. And very often it says something about God. And those implicit beliefs, children process trauma on a nonverbal level. So they can't articulate. They have this feeling that feels so true, but it's implicit. It's not actually true. And so children struggle with their faith when they misinterpret life circumstances about being, says something about me, my past, my future, and God. So how do you help them through that? Well, first of all, you say, okay, tell me what happened. And there's a, there's a pretty interesting little paradigm. It's called the event meaning emotion scale. You know, here's your event. And every time you experience an event, you get a byproduct that is emotion. Now, emotions are designed for us to experience. There's no emotion that we can have then come from the Creator. So all emotions are valid. Now, sometimes in church, we make emotions, we dismiss them, we deny them, or we disapprove them. We tell children, you're really not feeling what you're feeling, and what you're feeling, you shouldn't feel. And so when you experience emotions and they lead you to balance and harmony, those are your emotions are doing what they're supposed to do. Godly sorrow works repentance that leads to salvation not to be regretted. Guilt is not a bad thing. Guilt is a lane changer. But if it doesn't change the lane, it makes me stop. It makes me withdraw. It makes me self-destruct. Then guilt's not doing its job. So when I see an event and somebody says, well, these are my emotions, and those emotions don't produce balance and harmony, but they produce distress, destruction, and dysfunction. Well, between the event and the emotions is a filter that we call perception. And so how you interpret the world, what you perceive affects what you see more than what you see affects what you perceive. People who don't believe in Bigfoot don't see Right? I'm, I'm sitting in the woods. I'm not, I don't believe in Bigfoot. Somebody have him on a camera. Somebody in Alabama would have shot him. Okay? So I'm sitting in my tree, and something moves across my line of vision. Hey, that's a bear. That's a guy in a gorilla suit. That's a guy in a ghillie suit. That's my wife's mom. It can be all kinds of things. That could be wrong. But I don't believe in Bigfoot. So what I see is affected by my perception. In the same way, people who believe in him can see anything. And I saw Bigfoot tonight. So what happened? What does this mean to you? Yeah. So you have to help them get a new paradigm yes. for the way they see life. You just simply ask, what does this mean? What, what does this say to you? Or what does this say about you? And then you have to gently ask, does this mean what you think it means? And children, again, if I'm egocentric, everything's about me, then everything's in my power, everything's in my fault. For instance, if I could make you mad, if it works that way, if I have the power to make you mad, I can make you happy. If I can make you drink, I can make you sober. If I can make you cheat, I can make you faithful. If I can make you kill yourself, I can keep you alive. So when I feel like you're doing something and it's my fault, I have to check that at the door. 
Well, if, I, if I've got that kind of control over you, you'd act differently. So these things happened in my life. Okay, what do those things mean to you? Well, it means I'm bad. It means I'm unloved. It means God can't forgive me. It means I'll never be happy. I'll never. Does this really mean what you think it means? You take the story of Joseph. Joseph's brother sell him. If you sell your brother, you got to explain that to dad, right? What do they What do they tell their dad? They lie about it. Well, the plan is to lie about it, but in the scripture, they just show him a coat with blood on it. When he sees the coat with blood, event, his perception says this means my son is dead. He's torn by a lion. I'll never be happy again. Is his interpretation of that event accurate? No. It affects the rest of his life. Yeah. Hey, we can't take Benjamin to Egypt because if anything happens to Benjamin, that, that, that old man will have a come apart. He'll come off the rails. They tell Joseph that, not knowing it's Joseph. Hey, we've got a brother, but you, he can't leave his dad's side because dad's fragile. And the whole time, his interpretation of that bloody coat is inaccurate because Joseph is not dead. He's alive. He, he, he's not been eaten by a lion. In fact, he's eating quite a bit because he lives in Pharaoh's palace. And, and he's married and happy. And so when you can challenge a young person's interpretations about what they think about what has happened, what it says to them about God, that's one of the places I would go to challenge it. You know, I, I heard some time, some time ago that there's about three ways you can change people. One of them is by the force of your personality. The other is by convincing them that change is in their best interest. But the one that last is changing their paradigm, changing the way they see things. So... How do you introduce hope into a situation where a person feels hopeless? How do you introduce that to them? So, so with a young person, uh, their paradigm suffers from what you call emotional dysregulation. So as a mature adult, and that I'm using that term accommodatively, okay? But as a mature adult, ideal for me is on the north end of a football field. Unacceptable is on the south end of a football field, and there's 100 yards, there's 300 feet between ideal and unacceptable. A young person separates ideal and unacceptable razor thin. If I'm not perfect, I'm a failure. If you won't let me do that, I can't do anything. If I didn't do it all, I didn't do anything. And, and so that paradigm of, first of all, are you interpreting the world where that ideal and unacceptable is, is rigidly binary? You know, a lot of kids when they make a mistake sexually, they think, I can never be forgiven. I'm impure. What does God say about forgiveness? And, and so changing that paradigm, as you said, is first attacking the ideal versus unacceptable and, and how much room do you give that? Uh, I do some, some, I goof around with ropes. I'm a rappelling instructor sometimes. Uh, and there's a textbook way to set up a rope. Two anchor points with a tensionless rig. So the two big trees, two big rocks, two big vehicles, you wrap that rope around both of those, and then you have a friction device, you have a belay person on the bottom or a belay person on the top. That's how you repel with Boy Scouts. That's how you repel with novices. Well, then there's stuff that's completely unacceptable. Hey, here's a rope we bought at Lowe's. <laughs> Let's go slide down the side of it. Okay, that's ideal. The other one's unacceptable. And then there's stuff you do with a SWAT team that's called field expedient. I can tie a rope in a configuration where it has three loops, clip it to three operators and rappel into an elevator shaft off three human anchors. Now, OSHA will lose their mind. The Association of Challenge Course Technology would revoke my license. But what you do with Boy Scouts is not what you do with, with SWAT guys because they get paid to take risk. And so ideal, unacceptable, and field expedient and, and teaching young people, you know, God created us knowing we had a capacity for imperfection. 
and your mistakes don't define your future. They only tell you what you did in the past. Okay. Can I tell you something that I think not just kids but adults struggle with a lot, and that is the concept of being imperfect and yet experiencing God's grace, that, that we, we feel like that we are hopeless at times because we don't really get the whole concept of grace. So it's not just for young people, but for older people as well. How do you get them to see grace? How do you get them to see that? You understand what I believe, and you read the book, The Soul of Shame. Uh, you get them to understand the function of not just guilt, but of shame. Shame is the fear of loss of connection. And when we experience shame, we suffer disintegration. I hide from you. I hide from the church. I hide from my family. You know, there's this idea that you have to come to church and act like you're perfect. Well, before God created the world, he understood we had a capacity for imperfection. Paul teaches before the foundation, or before God made the first Adam, A-T-O-M or A-D-A-M, he had the Messiah ready. So you get Adam and Eve in the garden. The Bible verse says they were naked and there was no shame. They were not self-conscious. They really weren't self-aware. They just lived in this paradise. Well, as soon as they sinned, what happened to them? They hid from themselves. They were naked and nobody had a problem. Now, they're, now they hide from themselves. They cover up from themselves. And they hide from God. Now, what guilt does is it makes us godly sorrow, works repentance, leads to salvation. What shame does is it makes us disintegrate. So when God comes into the garden to talk to them that day, what do they do? Shame. They're I've got a little granddaughter. She, she is my daughter's genetic copy. You know, God looked down and said, that one was so much fun, let's make another one. <laughs> you know, Rowan Harper Watkins gets up and thinks they turned gravity off today. And she's going to do all kinds of stuff. If you tell her, don't climb on that, you'll fall and hurt your knee. She'll climb on it and she'll fall and she'll hurt her knee. You know what she does? She runs to me. When God's children fell on her knees, they ran from him. That's the function of shame. And teaching people that shame should not make us run from God, shame should make us run to God. Did you know there's a the story of the man that was let down through the roof? Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing story. His friends put him down through the roof. But Jesus said something to him when he sees him there in the middle. Everybody else is upset except Jesus. And I, I don't even sure that the guy liked being let down on a bungee cord. I mean, really. So, but but Jesus isn't upset. But he says something interesting. He says, "Be of good cheer." Your sins are forgiven. And for the longest time, I saw be of good cheer as like, don't worry, be happy. But that's not what it means at all. It's narceo, which means have courage. Have courage. Your sins are forgiven. Sin makes me afraid. Yes. And Jesus says, I came to give you courage. Your sins are forgiven. We get courage when we realize we're forgiven. And, and until that time, we do tend to hide. And, and we get courage knowing that the, the game is not to be perfect, it's to be faithful. And there's a big difference in, in perfection and faithfulness. Oh, and, you know, ask any coach. You'd rather have a gifted athlete who only tries when he's winning. You'd rather have a medium-level athlete who, who will leave their guts out on the field because they'll try every time. As long as you're trying, God will take care of your batting average. Yeah, that's great. Well, okay, so we're, we're looking at, at producing faith by looking at life from a different perspective, seeing it from a godly perspective. And I, and I think... That's absolutely true. It's hard to go back to the old life when you realize that wasn't real. If, if you can understand that what I used to think wasn't real, and this is what reality is, 
we tend to change permanently because I, I don't go back to that because that was absolutely unreal. And and the the connection for that change, uh, Courtney Armstrong, a little therapist out of uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, talks about metaphorical healing. And, and the metaphorical healing is, and I wrote a little book that I used the principles of jujitsu to talk about some protecting your inside space. And the last chapter is about protecting your heart. And I, I introduced the chapter by talking about chokeholds. The way a chokehold works is I cut your head off from your heart. I do a vascular neck restraint. It cuts off your carotid arteries and you go to sleep. If I keep your head and your heart separated long enough, you're dead. What happens with a lot of times is we have a separation from the intellect and the emotion. What does David know intellectually about he and Bathsheba? Yeah. Well, okay, I'm on my roof, you're on your roof. Yeah. Okay, there's a big hint. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. hey, who is this girl on the roof? Isn't she the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Yeah. He's got his own written copy of the Bible. God told Moses when you put a king on the throne, he'll handwrite this law for himself. He got his own copy of the Bible that he wrote in his own hand. And that he knows enough about what's going on that when she says, hey, I'm going to have a baby, he brings Uriah in to cover it up and eventually results in treason and murder. And he's rocking along blissfully thinking he's gotten away with this thing until an old prophet tells him a sheep story, a metaphor. And what happens to David's heart? And then he says, that man's going to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. So when our head and our heart connect, that's when we understand that Christianity is not compartmentalized. And we do that. You know, we have church on Sunday. We live the way we want to live on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, and so understanding that, that a lot of my experience, and when you talk about the, the connection between, you know, intellect and emotion, that has to happen in our worship service. It can't just be rote. It can't just be this thing we do, we kind of check off a box. And until that happens, young people are always going to feel disingenuous in their faith because it's almost like cognitive dissonance. So that changing that paradigm is having an intellectual and an emotional awakening. It's not just God's love for me, but it's my love for Him that makes this thing work. And, and I can love God imperfectly and still be loved by God. You know, there's a... Again, I, I keep well, everything you say keeps reminding me of things. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah's worried about what's going to happen next. The king's dead, and he's worried, and he's down in the in the temple, and and probably praying about God. What in the world are you going to do? And God shows up, and he sees him, and suddenly he realizes his own weakness. But he says, "My eyes have seen the king." In other words, yeah, the king's dead, but not the real king. Right? He's not dead. Every time we come together in worship. I really think you have to have an encounter with God. If you don't have that encounter, it's just so many songs, so many prayers, and then we're going to go try to beat the Baptist to the restaurant. Right. It's, there's nothing to it if I don't beat God there. When you use the metaphors, for instance, that, that Nathan used when he's talking to David and others, it makes the connection. For there's, there's a lot today when you look at the circumstances that people grew up in and the environments they're in. And we talk about uh, different generations, baby boomers, Generation Z, Generation X. I don't know. There might even be a Generation A, but I don't know who they are. What's the name of Adam? But they're all a little bit different. They all have a little bit different worldview because of what has happened to them as they're coming along. How do you deal with the differences? And The Bible is supposed to, and it does, speak to every generation. How do you make that applicable? I tend to be a generation denier. 
I, I know that there are specific characteristics that get attributed to the boomers and X and Y and Gen Z and millennials, but I tend to think that people haven't changed that much since there have been people. If if I don't act selfishly, you will trust me. When you think I'm selfish, you don't trust me. And so if you approach every generation with the idea, if somebody meets you and they say, do you like me? Do you value me? Can I trust you? And will you help me? You can be a person of influence to that person without knowing all the psychological nuances about which generation they come from. And I'm a little bit of a knuckle dragger and a mouth breather. You know, I remember as a youth minister, this generation is going to be the ruination of the church and then the MTV generation and then the X's. And the I've been in youth ministry or in ministry for over 40 years and people are people. We're not that much different than we were in the garden. Well, that's true. I mean, we wear different clothes. We, now, we speak different languages. But the basic human condition has never changed. And, you know, you've got to name the beast to tame the beast. So being aware, you know, a dog's a dog, but a Jack Russell and a Yorkie are different. So that would be the only consideration I would give the generations is, is probably temperament and approach. But all of them need the same thing, which is truth and love. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of wandering around here. But I, I, I want to thank you, first of all, for being here. And I want to ask you any advice you have for members of the church today and in this time, what do we need? What do we? What, what would be something really beneficial for anybody who would be listening? If I'm talking about helping the faith of my young person, uh, I would encourage them to have a translation of the Bible they can read and understand. Yeah. Because children who can't read their Bible won't read their Bible. And older people, too. There's a oh, well, lot of them that don't know. I had a lady that asked me one day, she said, I've been reading the Bible for 70 years. I don't understand a thing. I gave her an international children's Bible. And she and said, oh. learning to read it in context, Yeah, learning to look at that letter from a view of 10,000 feet and not the three points in a poem the dude did on Sunday morning. Right. So that would be the first thing, because once you understand a problem is a lack of resources, and if a problem is a lack of resources, God said, I've given you everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And so if a, if a problem is a lack of resources, then the Bible's the ultimate problem solving too, because it's the ultimate resource. Now, I add an addendum to that, that if a problem is a lack of resources, a dysfunction is a misuse of resources. So we've got the ultimate resource for life and godliness, and we're using it to prove this group over here is wrong rather than how I can be better right with God. Yeah. And so using that book to understand living and living like God, life and godliness, would probably be the, the first thing. The second thing is parents, be honest with your children, open and honest about everything, sex, identity, gender identity, sexual orientation, be as honest as the, be as open as the media is, but be honest about it. I believe the kids can take anything if they think it's coming from an honest perspective. I, the one thing that young people that I know can't stand, it's hypocrisy. Yes. You know, they, they reject it outright. They can take their parents being scared. They can take their parents being uh, imperfect. Uh, they can take their parents being confused. They just can't take them being something that they're not. Well, when Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, when we were with you, behaved devout, justly, and blamelessly, and we treated you like a father does his children, we encouraged, comforted, and urged. Well, when you look at Paul, says, before I could do anything to influence your life, I'd have my life together. I had to be devout, just, and blameless. Uh, if I sit down with a young person and ask them this question, do your parents profess things in public that they do not practice in private? And if they answer that in the affirmative, 
That's a predictor of spiritually at-risk behavior because children can't stand the duplicity of this is how we act in worship, but this is how we treat each other. I love it when you use words like incongruency. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm just saying that, that I, I want to tell you thank you. Thank you so much for just taking some time with us today. Well, I appreciate that. Can I plug my podcast? Sure, please do. Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. It is metaphor. I tell stories, and from those stories, we do facts, concepts, and applications. It's a pretty soft introduction to people about things scriptural. Sometimes it's it's overt Christianity. Sometimes it's psychology. But it's usually healthy, usually fun. Uh, every Tuesday morning at 6, we launch one. We will start season 4 next Tuesday morning. Keeping up with Jones. Want to remember that. Podcast adventure. <laughs> Make sure you tune in. And by the way, keep tuning in to Good Shit. Thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, guys, very much. Thank you.